Hello, Sark Fighters. Today on the Sark Fighter podcast, we finally have some data to tell us if sarcoidosis patients are more at risk of getting COVID-19, and if they do, will it actually be worse? I'll be talking with a name you may recognize. He's one of the biggest in the field of sarcoidosis, Dr. Robert Boffman, who headed the study. And getting back to why we did this questionnaire was because I think we were making decisions based on no information. And so providing things like the questionnaire and getting the information and continuing to get the information makes it easier for us to make these decisions. The most definitive answers yet coming up on the Sark Fighter podcast. This is the Sark Fighter podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Hello and welcome to the Sark Fighter podcast. Now, normally this would come out on a Monday, but because it is so timely, I'm going to uh, publish this or upload it, if you will, a little bit early. And obviously you are listening to it, so I did. Um, but I want to tell you that as I speak right now, we're still very much in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. It is now May 5th, 2020. This week, some states began opening up, and that's still controversial, but they're doing it here in Virginia. Our governor just announced yesterday that it will be another week before he enters what we're calling here in Virginia Phase 1, which is not so much stay at home, but safe at home. Uh, So it's another week, for instance, before salons and barbershops and so forth can open back up. Um... And that has not been uh, something that made a lot of people happy here in Virginia in terms of uh, wanting to get back to work. Now, having said that, I just give you that for context. Um, I'm not going to go over some of the regular features of the podcast where we might talk about different things on the calendar and so forth or some of the latest uh, sarcoidosis generally related news because I do want to get straight to the subject matter today. A couple of episodes ago, we talked about dealing with social distancing and how to cope with being alone. And I think that you will find that podcast is still very helpful to you. But today we have the first real chance to look at the danger to SARC patients from COVID-19. And that's why I wanted to get this out right now. Uh, This is the question that I've had over and over when I've continued to go to work. They asked me, did I want my own office? Did I feel like I needed to be separate because I'm immunosuppressed? And I said, you know, we're doing social distancing. I'm still anchoring the news from the studio. Uh, we're doing we're doing the right thing. So I my answer was no. But the question that we that I keep getting, and I'm sure if you're a SARC patient that you're getting is, is are you at additional risk from COVID nineteen from just the general population walking around? And that is uh, that's not something that I've been able to find an answer to. I've been reading everything that comes down. I see lots of good advice, but it's advice to everybody. It's not advice just for SARC patients. Um, So what happened was, is the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research, along with the University of Cincinnati and Albany Medical Center in uh, upstate New York, they sent out a questionnaire. It was a basic questionnaire. Uh, In fact, I received it and I filled it out. It came in my email, I I think from FSR, Um, and it didn't take very long. 
and they had they had several questions. Is a sarcoidosis patient more likely to get a COVID-19 infection? If a sarcoidosis patient becomes infected, does he or she have a worse outcome? Is there an increased risk of a patient taking prednisone or other immunosuppressive drugs? Uh, any Is there any increased risk there? And something that I've been reading about quite a lot is Remicade, and I will have an answer for that for you coming up. Dr. Boffin will in the interview. Does taking hydroxychloroquine protect a sarcoid patient from COVID-19? And does race affect the risk or the outcome of COVID-19. All those were things that this study looked at. Now, once again, I have to say humbly uh, that I am just amazed, flabbergasted, call it what you will, at the opportunity on this fledgling podcast to talk to one of the leading names in the fight against sarcoidosis. Dr. Boffman is one of the biggest and most well-known names in the fight. In fact, uh, I am 99% sure that when I was first diagnosed here in Roanoke, Virginia, I uh, had an unusual case on my spine, and my local doctor was searching for additional information. It was Dr. Boffman that he called. So let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Boffman. Dr. Boffman is hes a professor of medicine at the University of Cincinnati, He got his undergraduate training at Yale. He received his medical degree from Case Western Reserve School of Medicine. He joined the internal medicine staff at the University of Cincinnati after completing an internal medicine residency and fellowship and training in pulmonary diseases at the University of Cincinnati. And here's where you get into it. His major research uh, interests include the treatment of sarcoidosis, among others, along with his longtime collaborator, Dr. Elise Lauer, who was also involved in this study. Uh, Dr. Boffman has developed several novel treatments for sarcoidosis. So these are the treatments that a lot of us are taking. Methotrexate, thalidomide, leflunamide, and infleximab. Right now he's studying treatments for sarcoidosis-associated fatigue and pulmonary hypertension due to sarcoidosis. And this is where you see how noteworthy Dr. Boffman is. He's on the is he's on the editorial board of multiple subspecialty journals. His publications include over 150 original papers and over 70 review articles and/or book chapters. He is on the editorial board of several journals, including the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care uh, Medicine and Chest. In addition, Dr. Boffman is the recent editor of books on sarcoidosis, interstitial lung disease, and ventilator-associated pneumonia. He's been an active member of WASOG since its inception, and he's the president emeritus of WASOG, has basically been involved with just about everything having to do with sarcoidosis. And he is the man that we will be hearing from Dr. Boffman will go point by point over his findings and what they mean right after this. The Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research is the nation's leading nonprofit organization dedicated to finding the cure for this disease and to improving care for sarcoidosis patients worldwide. Since its establishment in 2000, FSR has fostered over $5 million in sarcoidosis-specific research efforts and has provided disease education and support for thousands of individuals navigating life with sarcoidosis. Learn more about FSR and how they're supporting those impacted by this disease at www.stopsarcoidosis.org. 
Hello and welcome back to the Sark Fighter podcast. Joining me now is Dr. Robert Boffman of the University of Cincinnati. Uh, doctor, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for asking me to participate. So you have done uh, some research in an area with this COVID-19 pandemic as it relates to sarcoidosis patients. And uh, as a SARC patient myself and talking to my fellow SARC patients, uh, I just want to say thank you for undertaking this research. Uh, you want to tell us who was involved with this? Well, this was a collaboration between three different groups. One, uh, the University of Cincinnati, uh, myself and Dr. Elise Lauer, who uh, take care of a large number of sarcoid patients. Dr. Mark Judson at the Albany Medical Center, another large uh, sarcoid treatment center. And then the uh, Foundation for Sarcoid Research, uh, hinted by uh, Mindy Buchanan on this particular project. And so uh, why did you decide that this was something in particular that needed to be addressed? Well, as I said, uh, ours and various centers across the, the nation and the world actually treat sarcoid patients a lot of drugs that could potentially make COVID-19 worse. So there have been uh, efforts to try to define what we should do. Should we stop treatment? Should we reduce it? And um, I was particularly struck um, at our center. My wife, Dr. Elise Lauer, is an oncologist. And we give these drugs to people. If they don't get the drugs, they could potentially die from or have major complications for not only sarcoid, but cancer. So we wanted to get data. And so this is where the questionnaire came up, is to try to get some information. The sooner, the better. And so we've launched this questionnaire. I think the FSR was very good about allowing us to get this information. We only started three and a half weeks ago, and we already have some preliminary information. Yeah, and so today we are speaking on May 4th, 2020, just so uh, listeners have some idea of, uh, of what three weeks ago means. So this uh, methodology was essentially uh, questionnaire-based. Can you talk a little bit about how you arrived at your data? Okay, so um, actually we were asked, uh, we developed a questionnaire, uh, again, mostly between Albany and Cincinnati. And what we did is simple, about 10 questions total, identifying risk factors for COVID-19 and risk factors for sarcoidosis and organ involvement in therapy. The questionnaire was launched by two different sites, the FSR's reg patient registry, which contains about 3,000 patients. And then we sent out a general uh, appeal, especially in our own clinic in Cincinnati and Albany's clinic, to patients to go through a web-based um, entry to the questionnaire. It's an anonymous questionnaire, so the information is collected without any information or tags to the patient themselves. Yeah, I actually received this and filled it out and, and sent it back, so I'm in your, your pool there. Uh, and I got to thank tell you for you, that. <laughs> sure, yeah. I, I got to tell you that as a, a SARC patient, I'm still working. I'm still going into uh, the television station every day. We're, we're doing all the social distancing and more than half the staff is now working from home, but you, you know, they want us to be in the studio at night. And, um, but the bottom line is, is I've been, people keep asking me, are, are you at a greater risk than the general population? Should you be here? Should you not be here? And I'm, of course, I'm, I'm wondering that myself. Am I putting my, myself at an undue risk? And nobody's really had a great answer to that question. Uh, the closest we can get is, well, you're taking drugs that suppress your immune system, uh, ergo, ipso facto, uh, you must be at a greater risk for everything, uh, including COVID-19. And so nobody really has a great answer to this question. So 
hopefully that's what we can get to the bottom of here today. Do you, do you think we have arrived at that conclusively? Well, we never say conclusively in medicine. We at least try to avoid that question uh, sure. statement. But we do have a sense of the, the rate of uh, COVID-19. So we, we now have over 1,600 people who have responded. And although the majority of these are in the United States, there are some from elsewhere in the world. As you know, the registry is a worldwide registry. Um, and so of these 1,600 patients, we have less than 2% of them have reported that they acquired COVID-19. So that's a bit higher than the Johns Hopkins database at the same time. This was last week, April 27th, when we put the data together. And at that time, there were approximately a million cases in the United States of COVID-19 infection, documented infection. So we're probably talking about a, maybe a threefold increase in risk. And although that sounds like a large increase in risk when you say threefold, it is certainly not as high as certainly other things that we worry about in medicine. So there's a 98% chance that you'll go through okay. I think the other part of this is that we are also collected what happened to you if you had COVID-19. Right. So if you look at the 31 patients who were infected uh, reported, only uh, a few of them were hospitalized, a total of uh, three, and only one ended up in the ICU. Now, we don't have the patients who did very badly because they may not have filled out the questionnaire. Sure, they probably don't had other have, things on their mind, right? <laughs> yeah, and we don't have everything that, uh, you know, this is 1,600, sounds like a large number, but these, many of these may be in places that have not yet been seen much COVID-19. They may not even have been at the surge. So we are collecting state data, and we're planning on repeating these questionnaires uh, during the summer to capture people um, after they've hit the surge in their areas. Got you. So, so if I understood you correctly, um, the answer to the question, is a SARC patient more likely to get COVID-19, did you say it was threefold, three times more likely? I think that's difficult. I said the highest I could expect it to be would be threefold. Okay. Uh, because uh, there's a bias here that, that for example, uh, many of the patients responded were from New York. And so the, the rate of uh, COVID-19 in those areas may be higher than the rate of say, Wyoming or right. Right. So, uh, you know, we in Cincinnati are right in um, probably the edge of our surge coming down. Uh, so we are seeing this. And again, I think the follow-up questionnaire in the summer will be a more crucial questionnaire. Also, in our area, we do not check routinely for COVID-19 unless the patients are symptomatic enough to go to the emergency room. So I have uh, patients who had mild symptoms who may well have had COVID-19 that we never tested. I think that's the fear is that you hear about all these these people who are walking around who are testing positive now. Like I, I think I, even on the uh, the USS Roosevelt, uh, over half the crew tested positive, but most of them had no symptoms. But the the Sark patient is concerned that they are not going to be among that fortunate group that has no symptoms. That if that if this virus touches their body, they're going to wind up with COVID-19 and, and have uh, a worse situation than, than the no symptoms, for sure. So it, they're, they're, they feel like they're open to attack. Am I, am I expressing that properly in layman's Well, that, that's a fear. Again, that's a fear not only that, um, that the patient has, but also the physician, because we're giving immunosuppressives. I right. mean, we have, we have on a daily basis the decision, should we cut back on your medic on the patient's medication because we're worried that if they get COVID-19, they're going to get sicker with it. But at the same time, if we cut back too fast, uh, they may get sicker from their SARC wave. And uh, if we start talking about 
these biologics like uh, infleximab or Remicade? Uh, should we hold the treatment for, for a month or two? Um, but at the same time, the patient may become much sicker from their disease in the first place. So we've, you know, where we are right now is that the data we have, and it's a limited number of patients, but we're not seeing a, a marked worsening of the disease if you happen to have sarcoidosis. We are not seeing that if you're on, and we had over 100 and some patients on infleximab, that's Remicade, and they did not do worse than with a COVID-19. And if over a third of the patients were on prednisone and their disease was not more frequent nor more severe if they were on prednisone. So at this point, based on what we have, we would say that you should use caution about giving these drugs excessively, but we always say that about prednisone right, and these other drugs. But I think if you need it, you should stay on the drugs. Okay. Now I have, uh, and I have read so much about it, so I, I I can't give credit to where whoever it was that did the did the story. But um, Remicade was one of the ones that was pointed out early on as making people more susceptible to it. Um, was that just speculation, or is there another study out there that's counter to your findings? No, I think I think that's speculation. The the Chinese have looked at their um, they have the largest data with uh, with looking at this, and they've looked at a lot of these immunosuppressives, including the transplant drugs, and did not find the worse. What's happened with these um, drugs like Remicade is that this so-called cytokine storm, when the patients are very sick, right. so they're being given anti-inflammatory drugs. Um, Remicade not so much as the anti-IL six, which we haven't studied yet in sarcoid but would be potentially the same sort of idea of uh, knocking down the immune system. So uh, this is a mixed signal. Um, the classic example is Plaquenil, hydroxychloroquine, which uh, many people with sarcoid are on already. Yeah. And we also looked at that in the questionnaire, and we did see some patients with COVID-19 who were on Plaquenil. So it doesn't protect you from getting this infection. It didn't make you more likely to get severe, nor did it get more likely to get mild disease. But again, the numbers are small. Yeah, no, so the, the uh, hydroxychloroquine, and now the, the latest reporting that, that I've seen on that is that it doesn't help combat COVID-19. Um, do you have a thought on that? I think it, what it is is it's an anti-inflammatory drug, so it modifies the response to the infection. It didn't really, I think, uh, prevent the infection, and it doesn't help the body get over it, but it kind of modifies how much reaction you're going to have to it. We uh, actually studied... Uh, several years ago, these infections like tuberculosis and fungus infections, and we found that the safest drug in all those different drugs we gave and say somebody who could be exposed to tuberculosis or fungus was Plaquenil. So it's a safer drug, but it's not, uh, in sarcoid, it's not a, as great a drug as some of the other ones that we give. Now, there's, I, and again, I'm trying to keep this in layperson's terms and, and uh, as a lay person, <laughs> trying to keep it where, where I can understand it as well. But uh, we're taking these um, immunosuppressive drugs, right. and somebody uh, with COVID-19 who starts to get uh, serious complications, um, part of that is the body's immune response. And so it almost becomes, you might be better off if you're taking an immunosuppressive drug to keep your body from reacting to the COVID-19. Is, is that a dog chasing its tail or is that, uh, is that something that is actually true? This is a strategy that's been used not just for COVID-19, but used for lots of 
overwhelming severe infections for many years. Um, the classic example is sepsis, where you get a bacterial infection and the overwhelming response to the infection is sepsis. And that's a syndrome. So you start off with a bacteria like a pneumonia, you get it into your bloodstream, it's called bacteremia. You may, you get antibiotics and get better, but a subset of those people get very sick from the reaction to the bacteria. This is in fact where drugs like Remicade were first being developed because they would modify that response to the bacteria and people would feel less ill. Unfortunately, um, if you don't treat the bacteria, you can go on, you get less inf inflammation, but the bacteria keep growing on and so you could go on to die. And so we don't use those drugs anymore for sepsis. In COVID-19, we're still experimenting back and forth about whether getting reduced the inflammatory response, get rid of the inflammation, or modify it, get it a little bit less, but at the same time, not overshoot the mark, and so therefore the infection and the other problems that can go on. And really, it's secondary infections. It's not so much the virus, it's that next pneumonia from either strep pneumonia or staphylococcal pneumonia. 1919, most of the people who died for Spanish flu died from strep, uh, strep and staph pneumonias, the secondary infections. So you have to be careful about that. Nowadays, we have antibiotics, but we don't have antibiotics for every bacteria. Right. That has got to be so difficult. Now, you're a researcher, but you're also, um, you also treat patients. Some of my uh, uh, co-members here with the, um, with the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research uh, Advocate Group, um, I, I think uh, you are their doctor. So you're seeing patients as well as doing all this research. It's yeah. got to be so difficult to figure out the right dose and are you doing the right thing because there's no roadmap for this. I agree and but you know physicians are used to the concept of making decisions based on partial information and getting back to why we did this questionnaire was because I think we were making decisions based on no information and so providing things like the questionnaire and getting the information and continuing to get the information makes it easier for us to make these decisions. Again, my decision, I see a large number of patients with sarcoidosis, and I'm still seeing patients every day of the week with sarcoidosis in my clinics. Sometimes now we're doing televisits, sometimes we're seeing face-to-face, -face, but we're still seeing patients, um, and Dr. Lauer is seeing a large number of patients, and we make this decision every day again about whether to continue where we are, whether we should back off, depends a lot on these balances one versus the other. Right. Well, I tell you, now the, the other uh, aspect that you wanted to uh, determine with your research here, with your survey, is does race affect the outcome for COVID-19 on either end, whether, um, whether they were more likely, uh, if you were white, black, Hispanic, or otherwise, uh, to get the COVID-19 infection, because we have seen greater numbers of African-Americans uh, statistically showing up with COVID-19. Did you determine anything with respect to race in the survey? We have a sense for that. Uh, we're still under, uh, when we start splitting out, so when we split out for race, we don't have, um, then we have a little bit more difficulty looking at the other drugs, just statistically. You know, you start off with 1,600, sounds like a lot. And the majority of the people who so far have responded have been uh, Caucasians, so white patients more likely to respond online. Although, as I said, our clinic is ongoing and pretty running, and our clinic is, um, has a fair number of African-Americans as well as Caucasians, just at least 50-50. And if you think about, in the United States, the number of patients with sarcoidosis is about the same, but that's because there are far more Caucasians 
in the United States, but the rate of the infection of sarcoidosis is three to four times higher in African-Americans. So they're more likely to be affected by the disease. And as you said, more likely to be affected by COVID-19, at least as we now see it. Mm -hmm. is, there a, uh, is there a reason that African-Americans are seeing this higher incidence rate? For sarcoidosis or for COVID-19? Uh, either. Well, sarcoidosis, it's, um, there are several genetic predispositions. I mean, the highest rate is in Swedes. Um, and other Scandinavians and, and the Irish. And so I think this has been a longstanding question about the rate um, in, of African-Americans. And I don't think that, and it's also the same thing with women versus men. Now, as far as COVID-19, there's, um, I think some of this is genetic. And I think some of this is probably going to be socioeconomic and crowding and stuff like that. It's easier for, um, to see some of this in our patient population. A lot of these patients that I see are still going back to work. And you talk about Going back to the radio station, I have a lot of people who are healthcare workers. I have a lot of people who work in hospitals um, who are very, you know, who are going back and asking me every day, should I continue to work? Should I take time off? And again, we have to weigh the risks and the benefits. Yeah, do you, in, you look at my case, for instance, is this, should I continue to work or should I hunker down? I think you continue to work at this point using the cautions and precautions you can do. I mean, I think in the state of Ohio, where and where Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana have they sheltered orders fairly a few weeks ago that were pretty tight about shutting it down, and so I think the modifications have been very good. What we're now looking, of course, is coming out of the uh, this, and at least in the state of Ohio, Indiana, and Kentucky, masks are still going to be required. You know, the kind of recommendations we would make for our patients in particular are being made for the general population. And we're talking with Dr. Robert Boffman at the University of Cincinnati, who's been investigating whether SARC patients are facing any additional risk from the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Dr. Boffman, what do you think happens going forward now? Uh, how long before we get out of this? How long before the general population can take a deep breath and say, ah, we made it? And, and, and do sarcoidosis patients get to say that at the same time as everybody else? I, I think that, um, I wish I knew that answer, of course, obviously, about when we're going to be out of this and what's going to happen. I think over the next month, we will get a much better feeling for this. Uh, physicians have seen pandemics type things before. Uh, my practice has spanned from HIV through all the other things till now. So this is similar in some ways, but different in others because of the speed in which things change other than months, it's weeks sort of thing. But I'm hoping that in the next few months, we'll have an answer about getting out and what happens. The questionnaire, I think, makes it a little bit easier for physicians like myself to say uh, what you can do based on what the general population is doing. And I think that I'm encouraged by the fact that we're not seeing a 10 or 20% rate of COVID-19 in these 1,600 patients. I'm very encouraged by the fact that we're not seeing a large number of people with severe disease. I should mention that as we were going along here and talking to these questionnaires are being launched now in Italy and France and England, where they've had a lot more infection, the people who run the clinics there have said that their impression was that their patients with sarcoid had no worsening disease in their general population. They were, in fact, uh, wondering whether the anti-inflammatory drugs were somehow protective of severe disease. But again, they don't have data. That's why they're launching the questionnaires. Yeah, gotcha. So now that you've got this data, how are you disseminating this? For instance, uh, I have doctors at Cleveland Clinic, and I also have a doctor here in Roanoke, Virginia, at Carilion Clinic. 
Um, will all of those doctors be privy to your research? Well, there's two ways that we uh, get this data out. The fastest way is, and we were anxious to get this out, was the press release by the FSR. And this is truly a preliminary data. The, the final uh, scientific report about this will be developed after the second round of questionnaires later in the summer. And at that time, we also hope to incorporate the data from other parts of the world. Uh, the World Association of Sarcoid and Other Granulum Disease, WASOG, is another group that we work with with the foundation. And we have incorporated the European Lung Foundation, the WASOG group, to launch questionnaires that are the exact same questionnaires, but in different languages. So Italian, uh, Spanish, French have already been generated and they're being sent to their members in their, in their countries. Gotcha. Do you think we're going to have a big rebound effect once uh, we start to uh, open the country back up? Is there going to be a big ping where we might have to go back to where things are right now? Or do you think that they're just the, the government's going to just going to let it run? I think there's going to be fits and starts like everything else. Uh, frankly, most of my patients now um, are not going to, you know, immediately go running out to the uh, shopping malls without their masks or gloves. So they are uh, more likely to be cautious than the next person for the next few months until they really see what's happening. Um, and I think that's probably what we're going to see. Yeah, uh, it's it's so concerning because you know, a bad economy can have a negative effect on a population as much uh, as, a, as a virus at some point. Do you agree with that? Well, I certainly think that. I mean, I, we keep stressing the fact that the number of people who died from COVID-19, while it's a great tragedy, uh, there are a lot of people who died from influenza A last winter. And, um, you know, there's other things that people do die from who happen to have COVID-19. So you have to kind of sort out um, uh, these two separate factors here. Great. All right, and then uh, so you you will do a little bit more research. You've mentioned several times that there will be a follow-up questionnaire next summer. How important is it for someone to actually take the time to fill this out? How much time does it take if they receive this? Well, as I said, right now, we still would like people to fill out the questionnaire anytime. So filling it out now, if you've, if you've never filled out the questionnaire, take it, fill it out anytime. The, the press release has the, the link to, to filling out the questionnaire. It takes less than 20 seconds, really, but once you get in there, it's really 10 quick questions and you check box and then you're done. It is totally uh, anonymous. It doesn't capture any of your information from you. Right. And we will uh, we'll put a link to, the, uh, to that questionnaire in the show notes with this podcast as well. Um, and then at some point, we'll, uh, of course, it'll be after the fact, so it may be of uh, less interest to the general public and more interest just to... Um, to the medical community, but will there be a paper on this? Will there be, because this is not the end of COVID-19, so maybe a year from now, someone's gonna to wanna to really look at this research and, and figure out what the findings were. So will, the, will there be something that'll be published in a journal somewhere? Yes, there will be. Um, I can pretty much guarantee that. I'm, uh, I write a fair amount of uh, literature on sarcoidosis, and this, this is designed to be published. As I said, um, probably in September, we'll be able to collate our data and put it together. Uh, I'm the editor of a couple different journals, one called Sarcoidosis, Vasculitis and Diffuse Lung Disease, and that's the World Association's uh, official journal as well, and that will potentially be the place that we'll be publishing it. We would hope to publish it by the end of the year, uh, if not the beginning of next year. The 
but medical journals have to go through scrutiny. You have to be reviewed. You have to make sure that um, the information we present is carefully um, agreed upon, that the data is presented, and our peers have the opportunity of answering their, asking their questions about the data before it's published. So that's why there's always a delay between something like this and when you finally see it published. Got it. All right. Dr. Robert Balkman, is there anything else that you would like to add before we uh, wrap up this interview? No, except for I want to really thank you very much for taking your time and effort to go through this, as I think it's very important to provide information to patients about sarcoidosis. I certainly love to talk about this disease, but it's really more of a one-on-one. -on -one. Things like your effort are much more helpful in getting it out to the, the general group of patients with sarcoidosis. Well, I appreciate that. When I, when I looked around and said, how can, how can I help? Uh, this is kind of in my wheelhouse, so I thought, I, I'm going to do this podcast and uh, hope to uh, use it because everybody's listening to podcasts now to disseminate this information out to the public. So, Well, thanks again for doing it. That's where we are. All right, Dr. Boppin, thank you so much for joining us today on the Sark Fighter Podcast. So in summary, first of all, thank you so much to Dr. Boffman for uh, doing the survey and for taking the time to talk about it here on the Start Fighter podcast. So in summary, we can say based upon his findings, there's only a slight additional risk to sarcoidosis patients from COVID-19. If patients do get the virus, outcomes have been mostly good. There is no uh, additional record of poor outcomes from drugs like prednisone, Remicade, or other immunosuppressive drugs. These findings, however, are preliminary. They do, however, re represent the first real data that we have uh, when it comes to COVID-19 and sarcoidosis. Another round of questions will be coming out this summer, and eventually this will be presented by Dr. Boffman as a scholarly paper in one of the many journals with which he is associated. And again, there will be a link to take this survey in the show notes. I think it's important for everybody to take that survey. We heard uh, the doctor say that there's about uh, 1,600 people, which is their uh, pool right now, but the bigger that pool is, the uh, cleaner the data will be and the more accurate, so it's not too late. And then there will be another survey coming out later this summer and eventually uh, that will be reduced to uh, the findings from this group. And I'm sure that we'll be able to talk about that more after that's all done. Once again, thanks to Dr. Boffman, his colleagues, and to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research for initiating this survey and giving us all something to go on. Until next time, keep fighting.